it was a little bit surprising because I think the hearing was only a few weeks beforehand and it's been sort of wrapped up pretty quickly. So the decision was was 3-0 in favour of the taxpayer. And although judges and judgments have a certain level of politeness to them, it was made very clear that the original decision was just was not correct. And they think they've found that pretty pretty easily. Yeah. I have a little bit of a feeling that this decision by the full federal court is a little bit of slap in the face for the federal court because A, they came to the decision within days and B, it was a three to mm. nil decision. So very clear cut and basically just the formality that they immediately kicked it out. Yeah, yeah. So the date of hearing it's published on the on the record. It was the 25th of August 2020 and then the, the, the decision was published on the 18th of September 2020. So, so very quickly, and it was a 3-0 unanimous decision. So yeah, sort of it was a it was a bit of a tidal wave. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to another update of Tax Talks, update 22. And our first update that is not about COVID-19. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. It is only two weeks ago that we discussed the federal court decision in the Eichmann case. The federal court had decided against Mr. Eichmann and had set a very high bar for qualifying as an active asset for the small business CGT concessions. If you haven't done so, please listen to episode 259. The federal court decision was appealed and passed on to the full federal court. And two weeks ago, we thought that it would take another six months before we get a decision in this case. But the full federal court was quick and decided the case within two weeks, basically straight away. The full federal court overturned the decision of the federal court and so ruled in favor of Mr. Eichmann against the ATO. Here's Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne with the details. So we went through the, the, the background in a bit of detail um, in the previous podcast, but just to bring everyone up to speed, what we had was a piece of land next to the taxpayer's residential property. The land was predominantly vacant, had some sheds on it, And essentially the land was used in association with a, with a, with a building business. So, and that was predominantly, the use was predominantly the storing of, of materials, whereas it bricks or vehicles or, or things of that, uh, that sort of nature. So taxpayer approached the ATO to get a ruling. Ruling was unsuccessful. Taxpayer then went to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal And the Administrative Appeals Tribunal said, yep, that storage of materials on land, that is uh, use, and therefore the land was used in connection with the bricklaying business, and therefore the land was an active asset. What happened in the federal court is the, the judge that uh, presided over that um, case said, no, the land wasn't actually used in connection with the business because in order for the land to be used in connection with the business, there needed to sort of be this integralness to, to the use. And the court came up with a test called a, the direct functional relevance test. And 
to paraphrase that, essentially the use of the land needed to be so related to the activities that earned income from the business that the use in the case wasn't enough. And, and extrapolating out from that decision, any situation where you've got use that is, I guess, somewhat preparatory to producing income, so storage, for example, wouldn't be sufficient to uh, meet the active asset test. So that's where we were. What the federal court, full federal court decision establishes is the federal court got it wrong. There is no such thing as a direct functional relevance test. In order for land to be an active asset, you just need to look at the words of the section, which is section 152-40. And it says that in order for land to be an active asset, it needs to be used in the course of carrying on a business. Now, that used is not defined further. There's no essential or integral or direct functional relevance or any other term imported in that. All it says is the land needs to be used. And the court, the full federal court said, we don't need to provide more flesh on the bone to what used means. Used is a question of fact and degree. And clearly, if if land is being used for storage in connection with a the business, then that's enough use. And for that reason, the, the taxpayer was was successful on that issue and therefore established that the asset was an active asset. We basically have been playing ping pong. Private ruling said no, not an active asset. AAT said yes, an active asset. Federal court said no, not an active asset because you basically have this functional relevant test. And then the federal court says yes, an active asset. But it seems that the Fudel Federal Court didn't really answer the question that was on the table, and that is how much do you need to use it for it to be sufficient use? So by the sounds of it, the doors are wide open, and even 1% of use already makes the entire land an active asset. Well, this is a really, really good question, and the jury is still out on this issue. So the issue that you've just described is I have a piece of land, land is a CGT asset. And when we look at the concessions, it asks, is the CGT asset used in connection with the business? Now, what the federal court said was that you needed to use the whole or predominantly the whole of the land. And then, then, then they had the thing about the direct functional relevance. But, but in terms of that, how much of the land needs to be used question, they said that Well, essentially, they said less, more than 50%. Now, the full federal court didn't actually go through that. And the reason that they didn't actually go through that at all was because, essentially because of how this matter came to the court, it was through a private ruling and it was accepted that the most of the land was actually used. It was never, this case was never a case of, 5% or 10% of the land being being used. The full federal court did make a mention of a AAT decision from 2018 called RUS, R-U-S. And in that case, the land, only about 10% of the land was used. And what the member of the AAT said was, that's not use of the whole land. That's just a portion of it. 
So the, the, the jury's still out what that means and what, what the line is. Is it, is it enough, as you said, to use 1% of the land or is it 50%? It, it's not actually clear. So still a question mark on that issue. Yes, because in this private ruling, it was established or it was alleged that the full land, so 100%, is used 100% at the time for business purposes. So hence, the full federal court didn't have to decide whether 40 or 60% is enough and whether occasional use is enough. They didn't have to decide any of this because the private ruling fact alleged that it was 100% of the land, 100% of the time. Yeah, absolutely right. And and to another point, whether that's actually correct is <laughs> who actually knows, but because we're dealing with a private ruling that's sort of been challenged up the line, it's, it's sort of an assumed fact. It, it could actually be the reality that it wasn't 100% used and they just stated that in the private ruling. We'll, we'll never know the answer to that. That will be the ATO's next point of attack, though. They have this full federal court decision now that says, yes, if it was 100% of the land, 100% of the time, then yes, it would be in a connection with running a business. But now, of course, the next point of attack from the ATO's perspective will be saying, well, show us, prove to us that you really used all of the land 100% of the time and that your children didn't kick a soccer ball there on the weekend. Absolutely, yeah. It's interesting to see what will what will happen if the, if the ATO would look at this one further or um, more for a general application. What, what, what I think is that in terms of the whole or predominantly the whole issue the best authority that we have on that is actually the federal court case because the full federal court didn't actually disturb the finding on that so i'm concerned we're stuck with that that view that it needs to be whole or predominantly the whole at the moment because that wasn't although the taxpayer won in this case that part of it wasn't challenged at all or wasn't addressed by the full federal court so it's arguable that 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 position is still the case Okay, so that basically means the onus is still on the taxpayers to prove that the whole or predominantly the whole of the land was used for business purposes. Yeah, and what the full federal court says is, well, the use doesn't have to be of of a direct functional relevance. It can be storage, Storage. for example. They say use can be, use is pretty broad. It doesn't, doesn't have to be essential or integral. It can be more broad. And that makes sense because, you know, the example that you used before that a bakery or commercial bakery wouldn't be able to claim that their warehouse where they store the flour is an active asset, that seemed to be quite far-fetched. So it makes sense to knock that one off the table, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or some sort of manufacturing business where the first stage is done somewhere and the second stage is done somewhere else. You know, you can think of lots of examples where you get a, get a bit of a crazy outcome. The point that I wanted to make is, is how the federal court, the full federal court got to this decision because this is of a more wider application. So the commissioner was making arguments. So in the context of uh, construing the provision and saying, or what, what does this actually mean? What, is, what does use mean? What, what sort of um, principles should we take into account when we, when, you, when we decide what this means? The commissioner was saying it should be interpreted narrowly and the taxpayer was saying, well, it should be interpreted broadly. And the court said that because we're dealing with concessions, something that's giving benefits to taxpayers, 
it should be interpreted broadly. So if words are open and there's sort of two or more possible interpretations, then because we're dealing with things that are concessionary, that are intended to provide benefits to small businesses, the, the interpretation that should be adopted should be a broad one, not a narrow one. And that principle moving forward would apply to every other concession, um, in particular the small business concessions. So to give you another example of something we've talked about previously, we've talked about the 15-year exemption and that contains words that say in connection with retirement. So this confirms that where you're dealing with the small business concessions, if you do have a situation where there's more than one interpretation, then generally the interpretation should be the one that's going to be more beneficial to promoting the purposes of the Act, which is to allow small businesses to claim the concessions. Of course, if you've got a situation where it's very clear and there's only one interpretation open, you can't, can't make up some, some crazy one, but um, it's very important for, for taxpayers and it may have had the effect of, of just widening the door slightly, not only to the active asset test, but to the small business CGT concession more broadly. Yeah, I think it's a big one. It basically means, if in doubt, rule in favour of the taxpayer. Yeah, yeah. It's like in cricket where you give the benefit of the doubt to the, to the batsman. So, you know, if it's a 50-50 decision, it's going to go in favour of the, the, the taxpayer for the, um, for the small business concessions. Oh, that's really good. And this, we didn't have this one before? No, well, it, it's a rule of construction which um, of statutory interpretation, which has been around for a long time, this, whole, this premise that... So basically, some of the rules of statutory interpretation is that if, if legislation is intended to provide a benefit to someone, then it should be interpreted broadly. And if legislation is intended to be punitive or apply a penalty, then it should be interpreted narrowly. It's sort of like... Yeah, if you're benefiting someone, think about it broadly. But if you're intending to penalize someone, then we'll sort of interpret it narrowly to ensure someone doesn't get penalized who uh, really shouldn't. So, so those have been they're very old um, lessons of uh, statutory interpretation, but it's a good, helpful confirmation, particularly because the ATO was arguing against the point. So it's here in black and white in this full federal court case that no, when you're dealing with concessionary measures, you interpret them broadly. Oh, that's good news. Mm, yeah, so, so that could apply to things like whether you're carrying on a business or not, potentially for, for the active asset test, to whether something is used, to whether something's in connection with retirement. And there could be other examples in the context of maybe the, the maximum net asset value test where you've got a situation that's grey. So there could be quite a lot of possible applications for this. And I imagine um, a lot of, lot of taxpayers and their advisors will be quoting this um, verbatim in the future in further cases or rulings or objections. See, so the Eichmann case will follow us for many years to come. Yes. Yeah. So, so I think that's an even bigger takeaway. Uh, the, the, the active asset test is, is great news um, because as I've sort of likened it to a sort of, a sort of likened it to a, to a three-part trilogy And we had, a, we had a good result in the first one, set back in the middle and then a triumphant finish at the end of the trilogy to, to cap things off. So hopefully we've seen the end of that, that story now and there's not an appeal to the High Court, which the ATO could potentially um, do. But, but given the, the, 
been overturned so overwhelmingly, I, I think that that's probably unlikely. The Eichmann case is uh, is the third part of a saga. We've had a first part, which which involved success uh, in the AAT. We had a second part of the trilogy where we had a, a setback in the form of the, the federal court case, and we've capped off the the third part with a with a triumphant victory. Not only confirming that the active asset test is is pretty broad and can apply to things like storage. But even more fundamentally, we've had confirmation in how we actually interpret the small business CGT concessions, that they must be interpreted broadly. So where we're at now is we've got that confirmation and absent a appeal to the High Court by the ATO that, that this decision now stands and, and we can move forward with the small business concessions on that basis. Welcome back. So this is good news for anybody wanting to claim the small business CGT concessions. Before the interview, Andrew told me something else, non-tax related, that I found fascinating and wanted to share with you. He moved from Sydney to Melbourne two weeks ago in the middle of a stage four lockdown. We left Manly like 6.30 in the morning and obviously the roads in Sydney were quiet at that time. And it just got quieter and quieter as, as we drove further south, basically. Like even Southern Highlands and Gold, uh, yeah, past Golden, there was really like almost no traffic. And then once it crossed into Victoria, there was even less traffic again. So it was, it was really surreal driving during the middle of the day, beautiful sunny day and just no, no traffic at all. And did you see the Ring of Steel? You know, there's a ring. Uh, we did see, I mean, yeah, I mean, like we saw like one checkpoint where they were checking people, but I, I, I haven't done it, but I imagine if you wanted to get out of the so-called ring of steel, it would be pretty easy to do. Just don't go on the, the major highway because like there's so many roads in and out of Melbourne, like just like there's so many roads in and out of Sydney that it's not really practical to <laughs> police them all anyway. Yes. But the border crossings are, are, are done like that though. And, and yeah, they were stopping, like every car that's coming from Vic to New South Wales is stopped at the border. But going down, we weren't stopped at all. Like they're not, you can go in, you just can't go out. And then when you got into Melbourne, was it all quiet? Was it eerily quiet or were you surprised how many people were out? in the- No, it was really, really eerily quiet. It was like, it was like tomorrow when the war began, that, that book where they, they go away and then they come back and, you know, the world has changed sort of thing and, Yeah, it's really bizarre because in Sydney, like life is pretty much not quite back to normal, but pretty close to normal. But yeah, going to Melbourne was just like, wow, like so different. Th things are trending up up here now. Like, so the numbers are have come down quite significantly now. And we're almost, I think within a week or two, we'll be in Sydney levels. Like, I don't think we're that far behind. So a few more weeks and probably be okay. And then were you okay with finding removalists? Yeah, yeah. We, uh, our stuff got shipped down on the train and the same company, the same company picks them up and delivers everything. It's, yeah, yes. wasn't a problem at all. And It's I actually imagine, easy because they can park right up front. Yes, and I can imagine they weren't particularly busy. <laughs> I don't think there are many people moving right now. No, well, they said, they said that they had been busy with people moving out of Melbourne and international, like expats as well, like some expats. But we were one of the first moving interstate to Melbourne that they'd been dealing with. So 
because they had had like there's some expats who you know like wanted to come back to Australia and so forth. But uh, but yeah, not not as busy as they would normally be. Welcome back. In the next episode, episode 261, we will go back to Division 7A dividends, to the issue of not a shareholder, but an associate of a shareholder receiving a Division 7A loan, resulting in a triangular setup. Jeff Steen of Brown Red Steen Lawyers will talk about how to avoid Section 109T in this scenario. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.